Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and Everyone, this is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network in memory of my sister Marcia Joyce. And you are in for a blockbuster show. We have Alan Jindransky, he's here. And the book is called Forgiving Stephen Redmond, a prologue that'll give you heart palpitations, that's for sure, and keep you on the seat of your pants. Bearing a criminal who is a killer says he does not deserve proper remembrance. So, Alan, good morning. How are you? This book was really fantastic. Glad to have you Thank here. Thank you so much. Good morning. Yes, this has been a hectic week, let me tell you. <laughs> what can <laughs> I say? Yeah. yeah. So. How are you, Fran? Well, let's just say that I was very brave. I'm considered, because I'm an educator, an essential person. I'm an essential uh, something or other. So I survived the first COVID vaccine. Barely. Excellent, oh well. excellent. Yeah, well, I did. I survived it, but I had the worst. I wouldn't say it on the. I had the worst side effects you can imagine. Wow, really? It was just, yeah. The, the, a day or two after I was fine, and then last Sunday, um, my doctor actually thought that I had the virus, which I knew I didn't. wasn't even worried about that. But it was probably, if you're going to get the worst side effects, I got them. What can I say? Wow. <laughs> for, for three days. But you know what? It's not going to stop me from getting the second one. What can you do? No, me too. Anyway. I've had the first, now I'm waiting for the second. So. Yeah, well, I, I got Moderna. <laughs> me too. And, um, uh, I was very fortunate, no side effects whatsoever. Um, yeah, well, my, it's, it's scary because this was really bad. And the doctor I spoke to said he had the same thing, the first one. The second one, he didn't have a problem. So hopefully I'll get lucky. I hope I'm not so. looking forward to it. So I I'm actually glad canceled you liked my, my book. What? I'm glad you liked my book. I loved your book. As a matter of fact, um, there were a lot of hands out for this. I've been hiding it. Seriously. <laughs> it's, okay. It's, I, 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 I have a review from I don't even know who anymore. And yesterday, the, the, the it was the funniest thing. Um, Isabella Blackthorn, I review for them once in a while when I'm in a good mood, and they sent me this little badge as an outstanding reviewer or something to put on my uh, site, but I don't put stuff like that out because Amazon is very weird when it comes to stuff like that for some reason. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah, they, it it says, it, it, it's, it's cute, I'll tell you that. Um, they're a little badge, and it says, Blackthorn Book Tour's leading reviewer. That would be me. But Very that's nice. okay. So how did you decide on the prologue that, I mean, once I started the prologue, I couldn't put the book down. So it's interesting on how I how I sort of started doing that. Um, when, I, I don't know if you recall, but the, this is actually the, the third book, although it's the second chapter. It's the third release in the Forgiving Series. It's also the final release. So the first uh, book 
which I released in the Forgiving series. It's called Forgiving Maximo Rothman. And uh, in Forgiving Maximo Rothman, I do, which was, you know, my debut novel, I do what we are taught as mystery writers to do, which is you have to give the the body to the reader in the first ten pages. So in mm-hmm. Forgiving Maximo Rothman, the body appears on about page six. Um, but when I wrote uh, Forgiving Mariella Camacho, which is book three of this series, but actually was published second, which is a very long story, um, I realized about halfway through that book that I needed to really grab the reader on the first page. So I I, I developed this technique, which I'm now using with murder mysteries, where there's a prologue, and in the prologue there's uh, a picture of the the actual uh, murder or the aftermath of the murder that's happening right away. So um, when I initially wrote uh, Forgiving Stephen Redmond, I started with Chapter 1, as it appears, and then I realized after I had written about a quarter of the book that I should move something to the front, as I did in Mariela Camacho, to give the reader the body right away. Uh, So that's what I did. I, I, I painted this picture of this moment just after the murder happens and how the uh, body gets, uh, how the body ends up where the body ends up. Uh, so that when um, when the reader goes into chapter one, they understand what's happening more so than the, um, than the detectives do. The detectives have no idea how this body got to where it is, but the reader actually does. And uh, people have, have written a lot of great things. You know, reviewers have said a lot of great things about that opening scene. Uh, I was... I mean, I'm, I'm very humbled by some of the remarks, and I, I know that readers really like it. It does grab people uh, because it is, uh, you know, it is rather uh, sort of graphic, and uh, it does grab a lot of attention. So that's how no, that ended up where it did. It did. It did because um, I've, re- I've read thousands of books, literally. No, really. In the, in the, yeah, in the five, too many. And yesterday I read one, and I read it in a day, probably shouldn't have. And um, I'm going to have to get very creative since I'm interviewing the author. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You didn't really write this. But, yeah, uh, sometimes it, it grabs me, and sometimes it – if a book takes you more than two days to read, you're in trouble. There is no matter how many pages. This took me about two hours, not even. Uh, <laughs> so. I'm glad that you were able to get through it quickly. You know, I try to write in a way that – both keeps the re- the reader engaged and also doesn't put the reader to sleep. You know, uh, no. I I'm very uh, open about the fact that I consider my uh, my work to be contemporary um, literature, not genre not genre fiction. I mean, genre fiction rather, not literary fiction, because uh, I personally prefer uh, genre and contemporary fiction to literary fiction. I personally prefer a book that does it that has larger print, which yours does. I didn't have to um, take a magnifying glass or well, we ask my people in FedEx to print the book out, which I've had to do with a couple of books lately, wow. seriously. So how will this bring, shed, bring or shed light on what happened to Maximo? And tell us what was found in the apartment. Oh, my God. Seriously. Well, okay. So what? Uh, in terms of Maximo, let's talk a little bit about Maximo first. When yeah. I wrote Forgiving Maximo Rothman, the truth is that it was written as a standalone. I never went into that intending to write a series. But once I wrote the book and I started uh, doing uh, speaking events with readers, I was often questioned about um, 
whether or not the uh, there would be another book because I had left a lot of lo- loose endings. And I started thinking, you know, people really enjoyed uh, the book so much that and and my writing group at the time I had a you know sort of a, a group with other writers where we would uh, we would sort of bounce each other's work off each other. It was like a workshop. And my other you know my other friends in this group all said the same thing, which is that the book had you know the characters had legs and could certainly handle another book. So I wanted to tie up uh, certain questions and and um, what this does and you know one of the questions that I was asked very uh, frequently was what happened to Maximo and Helen when they came to the United States because I, I didn't talk about that at all in Forgiving Maximo Roth but so this book really kind of answers that question along with the question of how did their son Stephen Redmond become the uh, a, an Orthodox rabbi and, cha- and and assume the name Shalom Roth. And so in doing that, I wanted to examine the experience of, not that it hasn't been done in other books, but I wanted to examine the experience of how children of Holocaust survivors and refugees from the Holocaust, how they were affected by their, um, uh, their, their parents' experiences and, and how that sort of ref- was reflected in their own lives and their own decisions. So one of the main themes in Forgiving Stephen Redmond is an examination of how, how Stephen, who becomes Shalom, reacts to his parents' experiences and their, uh, their inability to share their emotions about that with him. And that is not something that I'm not familiar with because uh, I come from a family where there were literally 112 people who lost their lives in, in the Holocaust and uh, in my grandparents' house, there was a long wall uh, coming from the front of the house down into the foyer that was, uh, which hung pictures of my grandfather's family, my maternal, my maternal grandfather's family, all of whom died in the war. And actually, uh, a lot of the people, those people are the basis for some of these characters. And Max, uh, Maximo Rothman himself is based on my uncle, whose name was Max Grunfeld. So, um, you know, I understood the feeling of, like, who are these people and, you know, how come there are these pictures here, but we never, we don't know these people, what happened to them. And as you grow from a small child to a teenager, little bits of information come out, and you start to understand that something very, very horrific and very life-changing happened with respect to these people. And I, yeah. I, I wanted that to be, I wanted to examine that, and I wanted that to come through in the story of, of Stephen Redmond. Uh, who you know, Shalom Roth and Stephen Redmond. So that's kind of how uh, Maximo. Um, that's how it relates back to the character of Maximo Rothman. Um, you know, I, there were a number of different things that I wanted to examine here. I also wanted to examine the experience of uh, so, sort of the, the immigration of of Latino people, the beginning of the immigration of Latino people to uh, the United States, and specifically to New York uh, in the 1950s and 60s, and how they were received and how some of the uh, elements of that reception are still uh, a fact of life today. I I personally, myself, I live in Washington Heights, and I'm uh, very um, sort of active in the community, and I have very strong ties to the Dominican community here, so, you know, I, I've kind of, I know their stories, and I want to tell their stories, and I, I want their, their stories to be understood by the general population. So that's kind of well, how where the book came from. That, that is interesting. 
So how do they come to meeting with a reporter, and how does the interview set the events for what's going to happen, and what do they learn? Okay, so um, what happens is that they, they're out on a uh, – my two detectives, Kuchenko and Gonzalez, are having lunch on a very hot day in August, and they get a call from the precinct telling them to go to a building on 187th Street, an old wood frame building that is being torn down to make way for new housing. And that actually did happen. There was there was this stand of old wood frame houses on 187th between Broadway and Wadsworth, and they were torn down some years ago to make way for uh, a high-rise, uh, you know, a sort of luxury high-rise rental, which in fact was never built. And inside one of the buildings, the workers discover a body that has been plastered into a wall. And it's very hard to tell exactly how long it's been there because, uh, first of all, it's nearly a mummy. And second of all, the clothing, as uh, as Krichenko and Gonzalez say, you know, well, you know, if if the guy had money and the clothing were bought new, he would have. This would have happened in the 50s. But if the guy was poor and it was used used or old clothing, this would have ha- This murder happened in the 60s because you know they would have still been wearing the suit. So uh, they start doing research and they have to research. It's a cold case, and I specifically wanted to write a cold case. So I um, I had them doing research, and they split up the research. And one of the things they do is uh, uh, Kurchenko goes online and he discovers a guy uh, who is sort of the, you know, sort of the, uh, quote, mayor of the neighborhood. And this is actually based on a friend of mine, his name is Led Black, mm. who, who uh, he's the, uh, owns a website called Uptown Collective, and he is kind of the mayor of Washington and so uh, he's been very helpful to me over the years with promoting my books, and I wanted to sort of give a nod to him. So as a surprise to him, I used his real name. And when he read the book, he was very excited because I hadn't told him. And he, I also mentioned him in the acknowledgments. He's a, he's a tremendous uh, guy, and he's a good friend, and he's been a big help to me over the years. And so I wanted him to be involved. And it also made sense because he would know about um, – he would know about this kind of thing, you know. If, it, if this had happened in real life, he would know something about um, those buildings, and, and because he is sort of the the historian and mayor of the neighborhood. So uh, Krachenko goes to speak to him to learn more about uh, this supposed haunting of these houses, and to learn more about these houses in general, and that puts him on a path to starting to crack the uh, sort of the ice around the cold case. And at the same time, uh, he, you know, Gonzalez does other research that uh, helps them to crack more of the ice off the cold case. And then the way that it relates back to uh, forgiving Maximo Rothman is that they discover that, in fact, Maximo Rothman and his, you know, f- his friend uh, were actually at one time owned the building. So that leads them down the road to trying to solve the case. So how do they find the diaries? That was interesting. And okay, how does so the this drive the plot forward? The diaries were interesting. The diaries appeared in Forgiving Maximo Rothman. So what happened was, um, all right, so it's it's interesting how the diaries even happened in terms of the actual writing of the books. Uh, when I was writing Forgiving Maximo Rothman, I had, ju- I had just uh, finished a, another manuscript, which eventually became my second published novel, which was called Stealing a, uh, uh, Stealing a Summer's Afternoon, which is very different than anything else I've written since. And I was taking a, a workshop 
at um, Gotham Writers Workshop. This was prior to having my own writers group. And uh, I wrote about the first, I don't know, maybe it was 80 pages of Forgiving Maximal Rothman, which were, was happening in real time in 2005. And then I did a switch in the structure of the novel uh, that I have to tell you was inspired by none other than Leon Uris, because Leon Uris used to use the same technique. He would um, he'd tell a part of a story, and then he'd do a long flashback to some of the to the backstory of a particular character. Or so I did the same thing. You know, I, I started this flashback to the Dominican Republic where Max Rothman had escaped from the Nazis with his wife and they had gone to a place called Sosua, which actually is a place that my uncle and aunt escaped to in 1940. So um, when I pre presented this in the, um, in the workshop, the teacher, uh, who frankly was a, a very well-known author, said, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. You can't just, you know... You can't just, uh, you know, start a new chapter in a, like it's a new book. And his suggestion was that I use a vehicle to be able to transport the reader back. So one suggestion was to use diaries, which I started doing in Forgiving Maximal Rothman. And the backstory in Forgiving Maximal Rothman is told through these diaries in the first person. So um, when I, in, in, in that book, the um, the diaries are in several different languages. They're in they're in um, Spanish, they're in English, and they're in Hungarian. And there's no resolution of what happens to the diaries in Forgiving Max Rothman. So I brought them back in Forgiving Stephen Redmond. What I did was I had the um, once they found out that um, once Gonzalez and and Kurchenko found out that in fact um, the uh, that, that Maximo had once owned, and his partner, Arno, had once owned the building, they, they go and they, 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 they look for the old diaries, which are in storage in, you know, in the closed cases section at the New York police. So they get the boxes of these diaries, and they start looking through the diaries that come later, the ones that come from the 1950s and 1960s, to try to garnish some clues as to you know, what happened in this, you know, in this particular case. And they do find some interesting stuff. Yeah, they certainly do. So why does he change his name? Why does Maximo Rothman change his name, or why does Stephen Redman change his name? Or why does Stephen Redman change his name? Well, okay, so that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, Stephen Redman, all right, so there's a literary reason and there's a practical reason. Stephen Redmond, the son of Maximo Rothman, who becomes Max Redmond when he become, when he comes to this country, mm. he has he has a hole in his history. Max does not want to talk about his life before the war. Uh, his mother Helen is reluctant to discuss their experiences in general because Max does not want them discussed. Max changes his name because he wants to start over. He doesn't want to have any connection to the past in order to forget the past. Uh, I'm sure that any of my readers who have any experience with the subject matter of the Holocaust understand how 
um, painful the memories are for people, both people who survived the camps people who were, and people who were refugees who escaped Europe. They all suffer from some level of survivor guilt. As a result of that, you know, they want to try to start new lives. And the truth is that if you look at the history of these people, the, uh, the, those who were most successful in life were those who were able to put a distance between themselves and the past and start over and look forward instead of wallowing in the past. So Max changes his name in order to move forward. Stephen grows up with a hole. He wants to know more, and it's not there. And he feels the tug of faith in addition to that. And when he meets Rachel, and he meets Rachel's parents, and he starts examining his faith, and he starts committing to a life of faith, he realizes that he needs to separate himself from the person that he grew up as to the person he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And since he wants to identify strongly with his Jewish background, he goes back to the name, the last name that his father abandoned. And eventually, although it's not detailed in the book, he does. he also assumes his Hebrew name, which all Jews have, both secular and Hebrew names, for, for daily use as opposed to the name that was on his birth certificate. So he, he transforms himself from Stephen Redmond to Sholem Rothman. Uh, in ter- and that's, that's more of a practical issue than anything. From a literary issue, there's two issues, one of which is how I structure the, um, the titles. In both the cases of Max, Forgiving Maximum Rothman and Forgiving Mariella Camacho, the title character's name is the name of the murder victim. Yet, in Stephen Redmond, the title character's name is not the name of the murder victim. So, I, without giving away the whole story, I have to tell mm. potential readers, you've got to read the book to, fi- to figure that part out. Yep. Well, they can't have everything. Sorry, people. So, <laughs> tell us about Jose, his wife. And he really never cared. He cared for Helen, but not in the same way that most people would think he would. You're talking about Maximo. I'm talking about whichever one here. Okay, so Helen is Max's wife. Yeah, Jose and Arabella are, are in this one. Okay, so Jose, all right, so in Maximo Rothman, uh, Max uh, develops a friendship with a Dominican native, a Dominican guy whose name is Jose. And his wife's name is Nareda, and he has a cousin named Arab Annabella. And in Maximo Rothman, which I should suggest to readers that you don't have to read them in order, but if you're going to read all three books, read Maximo first, then read mm-hmm. Stephen, then read Mariella. So in Maximo Rothman, um, uh, Max and Helen have a – they separate. And he Max meets Arabella, and Arabella comes to a bad end as a result of the Trujillo government. And so, uh, and, and Arabella is Jose's cousin. So uh, there, there was some, um, there were a lot of questions from readers about how it, you know, how Max comes to the United States later. So I do have one flashback in um, Stephen Redmond that explains what, you know, basically what had happened, which is that under sort of pressure and, and cajoling from both Helen's nephew and Max's brother in New York, 
they agreed to leave the Dominican Republic and to come to New York to start over again. Mm. So does Max love Helen? Okay, so the, the truth about the relationship between the two of them is that it was an arranged marriage. And that actually comes mm. from fact. My uncle Max and his wife Helen were the were the result of an arranged marriage. And it, so is it a love marriage the way we're used to today? Not really, uh, but they are in a certain set of circumstances that, you know, caught, they get caught up, uh, you know, just prior to World War Two in these circumstances, you know, it's funny. Uh, Led one once asked me, Led Black, who who is you know a character in this book as well, once asked me to sort of describe my work in one sentence, and I said I write about ordinary people faced with extraordinary circumstances and how they react to it. So uh, they may not have been, they may not have fallen in love and married in that fashion, but they were married and they were faced with. A uh, very serious uh, life-threatening situation, which was the arrival of fascism and Nazism, and they escape together and they go to the Dominican Republic. There's a lot of issues between them, and um, so does, do they love each other? I think they love each other in the way that any uh, two people who have lived in the same house for you know decades love each other. They've had a child together. I think Max makes a real effort to uh, to to make his marriage better with Helen. I think she makes the same effort, but there's a lot of underlying tension and there's a lot of what ifs and things that might, might have been different. So it's, it's a difficult marriage at best. And, um, you know, he had this other great love that ended very, very badly. So there's this scene where after they decide that they're going to come to the United States, he goes to say goodbye to Jose's children and he visits the graves of Jose's parents, of uh, Jose, uh, of Jose and and Nareda, uh, and there is no grave for uh, Annabella because no one knew what had become of her. Yeah, I'm looking at the thing, and there's someone that plays a very important part in this book, and that's Trujillo. What does he have to do with this? Okay, so Trujillo. Trujillo was the... Um, he was the dictator of the Dominican Republic for a little over 30 years, from 1930 to 1961. So uh, for those who don't know anything about Dominican history, you know, the Dominican Republic is relatively a small place. I mean, it's two-thirds of an island. The other third of the island is Haiti. And um, there are a lot of uh, – it's interesting, you know, how you know, people you – know, two different groups of people can develop such uh, antipathy towards each other in such a small place – uh, the, the Haitians are French-speaking and are quite dark-skinned, and the Dominicans uh, mm. are Spanish-speaking and especially then tended to be lighter-skinned uh, than the Haitians. And the Haitians view themselves as African, and the Dominicans view themselves as European, so there's these really serious cultural differences. And um, there are issues of race within Dominican culture. So... Um, Trujillo came to power uh, prior to his coming to power from about 1915 to about 1930. Uh, the Dominican Republic was pretty much uh, just a series of little micro states almost where you had warlords who controlled specific areas. And the government, the national government, couldn't really, didn't function very well. And then uh, there was an American invasion, and it was not a pretty situation. And um, he came to power by uniting these people behind him, and he made the Haitians uh, the common enemy. So um, in 1936, as a matter of fact, 36 or 37, he, he massacred about 25,000 Haitians in something called the Parsley War, 
which is sort of how was one of the factors in Sosua becoming a refugee settlement for Jews, believe it or not. But why is Trujillo, Trujillo to the cent- so central to the story? Trujillo, uh, first of all, was a terrible racist. He himself had dark skin, and he would use pancake makeup on his face and neck and hands mm. to appear lighter in public. He was also um, he was also flat out he was a serial rapist. He would uh, travel around the country. They used to call him El Codillo, which is like the leader, the chief, something like that. And his other nickname was El Jefe, which is literally means the chief. And he would travel around, and if he would see a young girl, he liked young virgins. So if he would see a young girl, 13, 15 years old, who he, you know, he had a taste for, he would tell his henchmen to go to the home of this child and tell the parents that he wanted to see the girl the next day wherever he was staying or some designated place, and everyone knew exactly what this was about. And he, he, he raped literally thousands of young girls. And if the person who, you know, the parents of this child uh, refused to abide by his wishes, they could be imprisoned, their property would be taken from them, um, you know, they could be killed themselves. Uh, and many of these young girls uh, ended up killing themselves. Their fathers ended up committing suicide. He did this for 30 years because he was able to. So um, it's central to, you know, very frankly, uh, it's central to the sort of uh, uh, common cultural history of the Dominican Republic today. It still has uh, reverberating effects on what goes on in the DR today. Uh, there's a very casual attitude about uh, sort of men's control over women still exists. It's most definitely a man's society, and that that is rooted directly in the behavior of um, Rafael Trujillo for some 30 years. So uh, I had heard so many stories about this that I wanted to incorporate this into um, this story, even more so than I did in, in Maximo Rothman, because that plays a big role in Maximo Rothman mm-hmm. as well in terms of what happens to Annabella. So uh, that's why I wanted to uh, use it. So, yes, he plays an important role because he's an important figure in um, Dominican history. Now, the the truth is that uh, um, today he's not someone whose name would be recognizable by most people who aren't Dominican or even those who are, you know, young Dominicans. He's just a footnote in history. Now, tell us about there are two other people. I'm looking at my review to refresh my brain here. Um, there are two other per Erno. And Vincent. Erno. Yeah, Erno. Erno, and, I okay. liked Erno. Erno, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Erno, all right. So Erno's an important character. He He's a carryover from, um, from uh, forgive me, Maxwell Rothman. So uh, all right. Erno is, he, they meet, Max and Erno meet in um, in Sosua, in forgive me, Maxwell Rothman. They're both refugees, and they're both Hungarians, which is how they become quick friends, because most of the refugees in Sosua were German and German-speaking, but Erno and um, Max are Hungarian-speaking. And by the way, Erno is complete, completely fictitious in a fabrication. He's not based on anybody, uh, you know, uh, in no historical person, uh, you know, famous or otherwise. So they meet in Sosua, and then uh, after Max comes to the United States, uh, he eventually brings Erno and... Erno's wife, Ava, he helps them to come to the United States in 1954. 
and they go into business together. And, you know, one of the issues is that, uh, for Max is that he only has this one brother who came to the United States in 1924. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Jack, who was actually based on my grandfather. And, you know, they don't share the same experience of life because Jack was here and Max was there. So for Max, Arno is someone who's more like a brother in experience for him than his own brother. And he needs to have someone to connect him back to who he really is mentally. So, uh, you know, he has this desire for Erno to be here, and he also helps him to come. So they own this rooming house together, and um, they're both friends and business partners, but like, but more so almost like brothers where they cover for each other. And you have to keep in mind that um, in the case of Max, he also had a twin brother who died before he could escape Europe. And the loss of a twin is unlike any other sibling loss, and I study that extensively in Maximal Rothman. And um, he, Erno is an only child, so he never had a sibling. So they, they have a very symbiotic relationship where one needs, each needs the other uh, desperately on an emotional level. So Erno serves to try to help Max come to grips with some of his uh, demons. And at some point, he makes decisions that he thinks will help Maximo, but don't necessarily help him. They sometimes make the situation worse. And again, you know, since it is a mystery, I don't want to give up too much away to the readers no. so that they may want to, you know, they, they may actually want to read the book. Uh, so that's kind of how he plays in. Now, in terms of uh, the, the murder victim, who also has two names, um, one of them is Vargas. Uh, he, he this this was actually you know it's, it's interesting because I uh, it's 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 become a theme in the last couple of books and I published a book about a year ago called The Interpreter and in The Interpreter um, at the heart of the story of The Interpreter is how the American military and the American government uh, brought former Nazis and former Nazi sympathizers to the United States to work for the American government military and intelligence uh, against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. So this is not something that was um, necessarily limited to Nazis in Europe and Nazi sympathizers in Europe. The American government had a very, very uh, open, you could call it an open secret, they had a policy that if the government was uh, anti-communist, which most of the right-wing military governments and fascist governments of Latin America war prior to the 1950s, uh, 1960s rather, they, they uh, absolutely supported these governments. So one great example, which most people know about, is Batista, uh, who was the forerunner of Castro. And today, uh, and we're talking, you know, 60-plus years later, we're still, um, you know, we're still in the same sort of frozen place politically with Cuba as we have been since the Castro Revolution because uh, we supported Batista and we supported uh, anything that was anti-communist. Well, this was also true in the Dominican Republic. Uh, uh, Trujillo was a vicious uh, uh, fascist dictator. He himself, uh, he executed 51,000 people of his, of his own people who, were not, who did not support him over a period of 30 years. I mean, 51,000 people is a lot of people. Mm. And there's a, actually a museum in Santo Domingo dedicated to the 
lives of these people who fought him for those three decades. So at the there was uh, after he was uh, deposed after he was assassinated in 1961, there was a change in the government. Uh, there was a free election about a year later, and uh, a guy uh, his name was Bosch B O S C H was elected to head the government, and he was a very uh, major uh, anti-Trujillo uh, uh, politician to begin with, but he had socialist tendencies. This was just after the Cuban Revolution, and the American government was very, very concerned and afraid that the Dominican Republic would go the same way as Cuba, and that the government would become communist and it would, and would be aligned with the Soviet Union. So uh, there, they had a lot of people on the ground who were in the pay of the CIA during the Trujillo regime. So some of these people were in serious jeopardy. Many of these people were in serious jeopardy when Bosch took, took control of the government, and the CIA helped these uh, so-called anti-communists, rather, but were really fascist uh, members of Trujillo's uh, retinue and his government, helped them to come to the United States, and was the case with many of these uh, types of programs. They were given new names. They were given new identities so that they could go and live in the population and escape any kind of retribution from the regimes that they were running mm. away from. So uh, that's, what ha that's basically, again, without giving too much away, what happens with Vargas. And Vargas is important because, again, that relates back to uh, some of the events in Maximo Rothman. So the book flashes back many times, and we witness two murders. Now, this yeah. is amazing, because a lot of killers are the same. I mean, I've read too many books lately. So how do the killers justify their actions, and how their actions play on someone's memory in the present? Because sometimes, actually, killers say, well, you know, they deserve it. What the heck? We don't care. Well, I mean, okay, so the question here, there's this whole question, this sort of, you know, moral and philosophical question about murder. Yeah. That I examine in this book. So, you know, uh, you know, I have taglines for my, uh, I have taglines for my books. So, for instance, the tagline in Forgiving Maximo Rothman is, uh, um, you know, we life is too short to make enemies of those we love. Mm -hmm. The tagline for forgiving Stephen Redman is sometimes revenge is more important than the, for the soul than forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So while all these books are about forgiveness, and it's, there is this question, you know, when is forgiveness not enough? And in the case of the, the first murder, it's supposed to satisfy or it's supposed to extinguish the fire in Maximo's soul question is, does it? It doesn't because it doesn't happen the way that he plans it. I can't say any more than that. You know. So, it, you know, why is there a second murder? The second murder is more a result of both accident and rage than it is intention. You know, you might say that in the first murder, he would be charged with first-degree capital murder because it was planned yeah. out. The second one would be more like second or third degree murder or maybe manslaughter because it happens without planning and it is an expression of emotional rage. So the other question is why, from a literary point of view, do, 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 does a 
writer point uh, place a second murder in a murder mystery? The answer is if if the middle of the book starts to sag, give him another body. Mm-hmm. So the, when I started, when I was writing this in the first uh, go around, I realized I had gone, you know, like a couple of hundred pages, you know, I'd gone like over a hundred pages and I had not resolved much. So I needed to wake the reader up a little bit. So I gave him a second body. But there is also sort of a moral and philosophical reason for having the body there, which is, you know, there's a difference in the sort of the quality of the two murders and, you know, the reasons for the two murders. So, you know, how does that how does that reflect upon the character and the character's reasons for committing this terrible sin of murder? Well, before I forget, let me put my glasses back on. On Wednesday, yes. special time. This is big. I can't believe it. Um, to, to, uh, the 24th at 12 o'clock, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, The Scorpion's wow. Tale. Yeah, not bad, right? <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah, the Altima's Travels on the 1st, and another New York Times author who I adore and love, he wrote a really, really horror mystery, because I love horror, Finite, Brian Freeman. And on the 11th, I have a panel show with Dick Belsky. Derek McFadden, Tim Ahrens, and somebody else that's on my phone over here. Um, yeah, there were four people. And uh, Jeff Bond. And we're going to talk about publishing and the negative changes, the positive changes, and how, how it's affected children and their reading and digital and everything that they can come up with. On the 22nd, one of my favorite people that's very soothing and and He's just wonderful and, and inspirational. Pastor Michael Jones will be here with the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians. I'm learning a lot, let me tell you. And on the 24th, um, the Matthew Goldberg, Orange City. And that's not a bad way for March so far. And um, we've got, at the end of the month, we've got Philip Margolin, uh, The Matter of Life and Death on the 31st. Not bad. So let's get back to this. We have a few more minutes. Why was Maximo so angry and justified? And what happens when Erno is interviewed by the detectives? Without giving away the whole truth about Erno. Well, uh, like uh, Maximo was angry because, you know, of the, you know, the various turns in his life. You know, he's yeah, he's had a very very tough life. You know, as as uh, as as Stephen slash Sholem says more than once, he says, you know, perhaps my father. Uh, was given more than he could bear. You know, he just, it was too too much. All the loss that he experienced was just too much for him, and he never really recovers from it. Mm -hmm. In terms of Erno, Erno, uh, you know, what happens when they go to see him? Well, uh, when they they go to see him, Erno throws a huge, uh, you know, huge wrench into the investigation when he flat out admits that he he committed the murder, but the detectives don't believe him, which leads to the, the rest of the investigation. Um, with the Erno character, you know, I, I really wanted to um, sort of give the reader a, a, a sort of view of how a, a, such an old man, the man is 100 years old, you know, he's, he's past 100 yeah. years old, you know, how he would, you know, what he'd be willing to do in the last moments of his life to try to bring some peace to someone else or someone else's memory. And um, I had a lot of questions about, from readers prior to, you know, from the Maxwell Rothman uh, uh, events about Erno and who he was. So I wanted to fill in some of the back, uh, 
uh, his backstory as well, which I do towards the end of the book. And then uh, the reader learns to un- become, the reader understands, you know, how Erno got from being a bon vivant, a bon vivant in uh, 1930s um, Budapest to a refugee in, a, in on the north coast of the Dominican Republic in 1940. And um, I have to tell you, when I wrote that particular scene, I myself cried as I was writing the scene. Mm-hmm. So I figure if, if it could make me cry, <laughs> it was probably pretty effective. Yeah, it did. And there was a box of tissues that was right next to me every time I read one of your books. No, seriously. Oh, thanks. So tell us about his relationship with Stephen and why he felt he needed to protect him all the time. I'm sorry, say I that again. I have a few more. Yeah. Say that again, Fran. I couldn't hear you. Tell us about his relationship with Stephen and why he felt he needed to protect him. You're talking about Max. All right. So his relationship with Stephen is difficult because um, he yeah. really doesn't know. He wants to be a good father, but he doesn't know how to be a good father. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's, a very, he's emotionally, he's extremely bottled up, and uh, he doesn't really know how to open that up. He doesn't know how to be honest. And that's one of the things that Erno tries to do with him and for him, which is to to be more honest with his son. And, um, you know, it's very, very difficult for him. He, he doesn't, you know, he, in order for him to preserve his own sanity, he doesn't want to, uh, he doesn't want to remember, he doesn't want to talk about his life before. He, he And Stephen really wants to know about it. And it's very, very difficult. And then when Stephen decides that he's interested in returning to practice, to the practice of Judaism, Max is very, very uh upset because that is the one thing that he has no um forget desire he has no he has no ability to tolerate he does not believe in religion he he feels that uh, that Judaism failed him that God failed him and he doesn't want his son to suffer the same kind of disappointment that he did as a result of of a faith that did not bring him comfort so when Stephen chooses to move towards what's called in, in Hebrew Balchuva to become Orthodox, literally means to return to the uh, to religion. Um, to re- literally means return to the answer. Um, he, you know, he's very unhappy about it. He rejects Stephen's Shalom's um, move in that direction. You know. So it's a difficult relationship for both of them, but they both need to learn to to be honest with each other, which mm-hmm. is very hard. It's hard for a lot of people, too. That's why. Now, one other relationship, because we have about 10 more minutes. Two other sure. characters. I love Carlos. I loved Carlos, and I love Baruch. So how did, what was their relationship like, and why so, did okay. Stephen think it was, he was okay, but someone else didn't? So uh, the, the issues. The issue about Carlos, I mean, you have to go back all the way, again, back to um, Maxwell Rothman here, because people people made certain assumptions based upon uh, the, the, his name, his last name, that yeah. he was somehow related to, that he may have been related to uh, Maxwell. Okay. Um, he's not. You know, um, uh, it's funny that it, it, I've been asked in interviews, you know, so what inspired me as a writer? And so one of, one of really, the, the book that... There were a few things that inspired me. So, so the most important book I ever read in terms of being a writer was Dr. Zimbardo. 
And um, in many ways, although there's very little sim- similarity here, I have described these three books together as my Dr. Shivago. Um At the same time, I was very, uh, I was very, very uh, influenced by Leon Uris and his writing style. And I was also very um, influenced by Ernest Hemingway and the way that he wrote, the sparsity of words and the kind of characters that he wrote and the direct storytelling. So um, with that said, when I started writing um, Forgive Me, Maxwell Rothman, I had intended that there would be another storyline which had to do with the, the Dominican immigrant experience and that there would be yet another series of flashbacks in that book. But it became evident before I was able to find a publisher that it was just too much. So a lot of uh, that story, which originally started with the character of Carlos, um, ended up in Forgiving Mariela Camacho. And that's really told as the backstory of Detective Pete Gonzalez. Yeah, I was going to talk about him. Yeah, I I just re-released that book as well, and I just had a new review of that today. And it's funny that the reviewer mentioned that, and you reviewed it some years ago when it was originally published, and and I think you enjoyed it as well. And she said that of the three books, this was her favorite. And frankly, of the three forgiving books, Forgiving Mariela Camacho is my, my favorite as well. So um, what I decided to do was uh, I took some of the backstory of Carlos and moved it and turned it into Pete's backstory in um, uh, in Mariela Camacho. But I needed Carlos in both books. So the reason I needed him in uh, forgiving Maxwell Rothman was that he became a foil. He was accused of a murder, although there was very, very little evidence for him to be mm. accused of this murder was very flimsy evidence. And when I then sat down to write um, Forgiving Stephen Redmond, I needed to resolve the issues between Carlos and the Rothman family. Yeah. And the best way to do that was to bring him back as Baruch's caretaker. So Baruch, who is the son of Shalom Rothman and his wife Rachel, the, the Rachel is not with the family in this book. She's and I can't say where yeah. she is because it's gonna that gives away the story. So she's not with that's the family. What, that's the question needs, I just crossed out. I just crossed that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He so uh, he uh, Shalom needs someone to work with uh, with Baruch because Baruch is severely autistic. And what we learn in Forgiving Maxwell Rothman is that Carlos has a, a younger brother who's severely autistic, so he knows how to work with mm-hmm. uh, autistic children. And he's really got a natural way with this, and he's tremendously important to Baruch. Baruch, you know, the question I often get asked is, you know, you know, why is Baruch in the situation that he's in? And, you know, how did that happen? And the, the truth of the matter is that, okay, so when I wrote um, Maxwell Rothman, I, uh, I would see this father and son on the street, the father, orthodox, and the son actually had Down syndrome. He wasn't autistic, but, you know, I have had a lot of um, close experience and exposure to the orthodox community in business and in my personal life over the years, and I understand that, you know, with the orthodox, 
what they value more than anything is the ability to be a chacham, you know, a, a academic achievement, to be able to study Talmud and become, you know, a, a learned mm-hmm. man. So they also believe that um, everything that happens is ordained by God. So if you have a child with Down syndrome, God decided you would have a child with Down syndrome. It has nothing to do with genetics, you know, or because you married your, your first cousin. So, um, and I, that's not said, you know, in, in any kind of derogatory way. Uh, and so I would see this father and son on the street, and for years, and I'm watching the kid grow up with the father, and I see the, the amount of tenderness and love that this man exhibits to this mm-hmm. child on the street. And I realize that, you know, he is able to accept the child's Down syndrome, despite the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. what his you know, religious beliefs may lead him to believe otherwise. So... Um, I, I couldn't use Down syndrome because your child was born that way, but autism develops at around age three. So it gave me a more dramatic way to present this situation, which related to the mother, uh, Rachel, and how she had such difficulty dealing with the autism. Um, so, you know, for me, it worked. It just worked. In terms of a literary sense, it worked better than Down syndrome would have worked. So I autism in, in this case. And well, my eventually show like, himself go ahead, I'm sorry. My nephew's autistic. Yeah. You would never know it though. That's the funny well, part. He may be you would very never high know functioning. It. Yeah, you know, I mean yeah, he is. Baruch has very severe autism, you know, and he can't he can't speak. So um yeah, he does. you know, it, it's it's difficult. But I needed uh to resolve the issues between Shalom and Baruch, and between Shalom and Carlos, because this was about forgiveness, and he needed to, Shalom needed to find a way to for Carlos to forgive him for the way that he had behaved towards him. You know, in mm-hmm. in, in, in Jewish thought, there are two kinds of sins. There are the, and, and you know, when we go on Yom Kippur to repent for our sins, there are two classifications of sins. There are sins of you make against God, and sins against you make against other people and you can ask God for forgiveness for sins that you've sinned against God but if you want forgiveness for sins you've made against other people you got to ask them for forgiveness God 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 can't forgive yeah, you Yeah I know So you know well, that's that's sort of central to the whole thing Well before we end let's what's next for you and where can everybody find out about you and your work Okay, there are so a lot of people that what, want this book. They're going to have to buy it themselves at Amazon. Tell I us. want them to buy it themselves because if if you lend it to somebody, I don't make a royalty. So you can no. find this book and all my other books on my website, ajsidransky.com. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, BookBub, um, uh, Smashwords, and a couple of other places. Primarily, we sell through uh, Bards and, uh, through uh, Amazon. You can also visit um, BlackOpalBooks.com, which is the publisher. Mm-hmm. What I'm working on um, right now, I'm in the middle of writing the second book in the series, the Interpreter series, which is called The Intern, which is set in 1953 against the um, execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which is a thriller oh, nice. history. Yeah, it's, I'm very excited about it. As a matter of fact, when I finish with you, I'm going to sit down and do some writing. I'm also going to be publishing a collection, a novella, and a collection of short stories uh, sometime later this year, which are There's No Jews and No Murders. 
It's no dead body. It's about life in the Dominican Republic today, and it's based upon my uh, experiences there. Every year I travel. I'm not this year. I'm not going clearly because of COVID. But up until uh, last year, for the last 12 years, I've been traveling to the DR every winter for a month, where I stay with my best friend who has a house there, who was also the basis for the Pete Gonzalez character. He is the well, you know, the real Pete Gonzalez. And, um, you know, I continue writing. Uh, you can check out my, um, my website. And also, for those of you who have book clubs, I love doing uh, book club events. I will do a free Zoom with you. Uh, if your book club reads the book, and if you're involved with a Jewish organization of any or any organization for that matter, or a library, or a, you know, a synagogue, a community center, anywhere where you would like to uh, do an event based upon uh, any of the uh, my books and the sort of the general topics in the books, ranging anywhere from you know immigration to the American military's. Uh, response in World War II to uh, fascism, you know, all these kinds of subjects I'm available and I'm happy to do them. You can check out some of those uh, events on my uh, website. On the, There's a page where you can see some videos that are recorded from them. Um, well, and that's what I'm um, I've got a new book coming out, too, eventually. Congratulations. Seriously, I think. Uh, <laughs> I have a meeting with my editor um, this, next Saturday. And my book is definitely not like yours. It's different. Um, I wrote this because people are really not being diligent about what's going on in the world. The title of the book is Population Zero, A World Without People. Wow, that sounds very interesting. It's Twilight Zone, yeah. Uh, A couple of people read it and said, you got to be kidding me, this is great. Uh, I created nine worlds, one without sun, one with just ice, one with mist, and I created dead people that came back to live in my world to tell everybody how they experience it and would they want to live with it in there. It's just different. Um, I decided that you never know. And Atmosphere Press signed me, signed for me, and I'm excited. So they got an independent publisher. But anyway, it's nice outside. I don't know how it is where you are, but it's going to snow again. Are you getting snow again? I'm looking outside. Is it? It is. I'm not sure what it's doing. It's supposed to rain later. Yeah, it says drizzle on my on my cell phone, but um, that doesn't make me happy. But anyway, before I end, this is something I say at the end of every show because people need to start listening. They start to need to not social distance, but then more importantly, when you go out, one small ask: please make sure that you wear a mask. Yes. You protect and me. I'm asking the same I'm a Yes. And even though the mask irritates my chin terribly, uh, I wear it anyway because I'd rather be safe than sorry. And trust me, everybody, you don't know when you're going to come in contact with someone that has the illness. And I have quite a number of times, and I got really lucky that I've been tested negative. And I hope everybody else stays negative, too, to hope the decline stays where it is. Just like the way the governor said this morning, it's going down. And hopefully everybody will get vaccinated and everybody will be safe. And one of these days we'll actually walk outside and smile at each other without the mask. But for wouldn't right that now, be wonderful? Wouldn't that, that be, be wonderful. I haven't seen my family in a year and a half. And my nephews, you know, Facebook me or they'll um, FaceTime or they'll call me up just to tell me that they miss me, which makes me great. Because they're not little kids. They just think I'm a riot which is great. So, Alan, thank you so much. Everybody, have a great day. One quick question. Can I get three more seconds? Yes, you can get four more seconds. 
Anyone who reads my book or books, please review them on Amazon. It's critical to getting Amazon to push your product. Thank you. Go ahead. I will. I will say that under my review today, which is on Am- which is on Facebook. I reposted it on Facebook, LinkedIn, and um, Twitter. And the minute I post something, everybody reads it. So everybody's reading it. Don't worry. We'll get it Thank out you. there. Everybody have a great day. Stay safe and bye.